Let's pray together. Lord, you have arranged this text for this Sunday. And by your hand of providence brought us to hear it. May we hear. May we heed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, but before we focus in on a few key aspects of it, I want to turn back to something that was said 500 years before that weighs in on this passage. 500 years before, Moses was given laws to live by from God on Mount Sinai. And, of course, that's included the Ten Commandments and other ways that Moses was going to structure God's people. And so the book of Deuteronomy is a book of the law about what, how to live. And embedded in that law in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy is one day Israel become a nation and have a king. And so 500 years before the first king, God is saying to Moses, write this down. Because I want the king to live like this. When it's time for a king, he has to live like this. And so here are some of the words from Deuteronomy chapter 17. Some of the instructions. The king must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of my commandments. He is to read it all the days of his life so he may learn to revere and carefully follow after the Lord. Just in case you didn't get that. Three warnings in this little passage. One, don't a, don't a warning against power, against accumulation. Don't, don't accumulate too much silver and gold because God knew what would happen. If, if you get too much power, if you get too much silver and gold, you're going to think, well, you can protect yourself and you're gonna, your heart's going to wander away from me. You think you can build a big enough moat around your castle that nothing could ever sort of penetrate that and you become self-dependent instead of God-dependent. A first, a warning against power. A second, a warning about prioritizing God's word. Notice that the king is supposed to write for himself. He's going to write it down. He's not going to ask somebody else to do it and give him a sheet of paper. He's, he's got to take the time to write out for himself. This is what God says. And most of you know, writing has a way of sort of putting it into your brain. It's, it's much slower activity than just reading. So he's writing this down. And then he's got, to, he's got to read it every single day. So he's careful to do what God has called him to do. There's a priority on God's word. And I just wonder right now, what's your habit in reading the Word? Not your hope. <laughs> I mean, if I were to say, hey, what, what, how are you doing with God's Word? I, I wonder how many would say, well, they would tell me, but it would really just be their hope. Your real habit. There's a leadership principle that says this, don't tell me about your goals and visions Tell me about your habits. Then I will tell you about your goals and visions. So I don't want your goals and visions for reading this year. I want to know what your habits are. And your habits will then inform me and you and everyone else what you can or can't accomplish. See, if you want to be a sanctuary, 
How is the Lord going to prepare you to be a sanctuary? It's going to be through your habits. Not going to be able to be there all at once. It's going to take habits to develop a place where you can be used as a sanctuary for the Lord. That's another sermon. Third warning against sexual sin. You must not take many wives. If he does, his heart will be led astray. The king has to have his physical desires underneath his own control. Because God knows that lust has a way of capturing your imagination and then capturing your soul. And the consequence of that is then moving away from God. Proverbs 6.25 The prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread. The adulteress preys on your soul. See, lust reduces a person to a loaf of bread. Momentarily, it feels life-giving, but it devours your soul. Three important warnings here, 500 years before 2 Samuel chapter 11. And if we had time, it would be interesting, don't you think, to take these three warnings, power, the word, physical desire, and put those against the three temptations of Jesus in the desert. Another sermon. Three observations I want to make about 2 Samuel chapter 11. First, the power of sin. In this passage, David's probably 50 years old. He's at the pinnacle of his success. He's at the pinnacle of his popularity. And he's fighting two, two ravaging wars. You see it. One, it's an external war in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David and Joab, which is his right-hand man, his five-star general, and then his servants with Joab and all of Israel, these would be all the fighting men, and they ravaged the Ammonites, these people who are enemies of Israel. So David is in an external war. He's successfully defeating the enemies. He's ravaging them. So externally, he looks like he's doing good. If you had run into David at this point, you would say, everything's up and to the right for David. Looks like he's in control. He's on top of everything. But he's also fighting an internal war. It happened late one afternoon, verse 2, when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof of a, of a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now he's fighting an internal war. And it's an internal war that's ravishing his soul. I wonder if anyone here is like this. You, ha- you have this sexual or even just physical appetite for something. And it narrows your life down to one thing. You have so many other great options. But like in the Garden of Eden, you can't think of all the great things God's given you. You can only think of the one thing you can't have. And your life gets reduced to like a little postage stamp. And it seems like if you don't get that one thing right now, then you can't somehow breathe. You can't somehow live. David's desires ravage his soul. I wonder if there's somebody here that is like David. 
externally, everything is up and to the right. If I run into you, friends run into you, what you communicate, and it's truthful about your family or your finances, your business or your house or your health, whatever it is, everything just seems to be up and to the right. And I leave saying, man, that person's in great shape. But internally, you're being ravaged. Something's devouring your soul. Some of you are familiar with the old, old story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Remember that story? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There was the respectable Dr. Jekyll. He was a man of ta- about town. He was a doctor. People knew him. He was very upright. But when he got alone, he had these dark, immoral impulses that he, he just somehow felt like he had to get out. But he couldn't do it. Doctor, Oh, no, not Dr. Jekyll. So he created a potion. Now, in case you're younger, this isn't a true story. I'm just saying it's a story. created this little potion and he would drink the potion and he would turn into a totally different man, an unrecognizable man. And not surprisingly, the author called him what? Mr. Hyde. Perfect name. I'm hiding. And Mr. Hyde, he had no control on his motions and no boundaries. So he would go out and ravage whatever he wanted to do and he would come back and he would turn into respectable Dr. Jekyll, well, the turning point in the story is that Dr. Jekyll turns into Mr. Hyde without the potion now. See, he needed the potion at first, but after a while, he just spontaneously burst into Mr. Hyde. And eventually, Mr. Hyde couldn't turn back into Dr. Jekyll. He was permanently Mr. Hyde. You might say, Mr. Hyde devoured Dr. Jekyll. David is a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type person. We know this, Psalm 40, verse 8, a song of David. Imagine him singing this. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law, it's written on my heart. I have told the glad news of your deliverance in the great congregation. This is David writing this song. He wants you, he feels it so personally, he wants to sing it out. Psalm 40, verse 8. I read your word, I hide it in my heart. I go to church, I stand up, I tell people how great Jesus is. Dr. Jekyll. But then we see Mr. Hyde, verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And he took her, verse 4, and he lay with her, and then he returned her. David can't control his passions. You notice it's quick, it's cold, it's covered up. Notice the string of verbs. He saw, he inquired, he sent, he took, he lay. It's quick. There's no conversation related in this event no hint of emotion david david never uses her name he never speaks directly to her she's just the woman she has become an object not a person the next time you hear from bathsheba one flat response i am pregnant it's quick it's cold it's covered up 
passage that we didn't read, David realizes he's in trouble, so he quickly sends for Uriah, her husband, and says, hey, can you come back and just visit me for a few days in the middle of battle? And so he has David over, they eat, they drink, and he says, go be with your wife. And he sleeps outside of the house because he's a man of honor. He's not going to be in the comforts and the arms of his wife while his friends are out fighting a battle. And this just drives David crazy. And so he sends Uriah back and says, can you send him into the heat of the battle? Some other people are going to die, but I definitely need Uriah to die. David is Mr. Hyde. What does this tell us? Power of sin. I hope you realize the capacity for the worst possible deeds lives in every human heart. Please do not discount that. The capacity for us to be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The capacity to sing Psalm 40 and then do what David did. That's inside. That seed is inside every heart. It was Alexander Solzhenitsyn who said, the battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man. See, it's it's not the evil people out there and I'm on the good side. I got the evil and good inside of my heart. It's an internal battle. It's always waging war. Solzhenitsyn understood the human condition. And my question to me, to you, is do you understand it can be you? Or do you think, well, I wouldn't do that? That's foolish. David's story, in fact, every story in the Bible is meant to be a window and a mirror. You look at the Bible and you look through it as a window and you see about God. Here's how I know about God. He's telling me stuff that I can't see from my vantage point. So I see into the Bible and through the Bible and understand something about God. I understand about something about the human heart and how the world works. And it's also a mirror I hold up this text. It's not a window, it's a mirror. It tells me something about me. The power of sin. It resides in every human heart. Second thing I want to see here is you better have a plan when those desires ignite. You can't get to a place where they don't ignite. And they may be for some kind of sexual temptation, but there's a whole other list of temptations out there, and they will ignite, and you better have a plan. And the first thing you need to do is to see yourself correctly. And you do that by seeing God's word, Deuteronomy 17. You must not take many wives. Why does he say that? Because he knows the king's going to want to be tempted to. He's already telegraphing to you. When you get into power, part of that power struggle is wanting to take everything, even things that don't belong to you. So you need to see yourself correctly. This could be you. 2 Samuel 5.13. Now we're in 2 Samuel 11. A number of years before this moment, 2 Samuel 5.13, when David moved to Jerusalem to be king, 
he took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. See, long before chapter 11, David was in trouble. In chapter 11, he's not battling. He already lost the battle. This is just a result of having lost the battle. There's no real battle happening. You, you notice here, somebody comes back and say, isn't this the wife of Uriah? And does he say, oh, let me think. No, he doesn't, he doesn't say. The, the battle is already over. He's already lost his battle because the crack in the wall of his integrity has already been broken down. So when this moment comes, it washes right into his soul. I don't know, it was maybe five or eight years ago. It all seems to run together now with COVID. You, you like this? Was that during COVID or before COVID? I mean, that's the only two time periods in my life. So this was before COVID. And there was a great rain that was causing the Mississippi to flood. And so they would tell the people further down the states, hey, the flood is coming your way and you can expect flood tides at you know, this day and this time. And some of the uh, engineers said, hey, we're going to have to open up these dams that we haven't opened up for 50 years. And there's a lot of farmland out there, and they tried to give everybody fair warning to say, you can save your farm. We think the water will be like four or five feet high, but you've got to get on it now, and you've got to put a barrier around anything you think is valuable so you can save your farm. So they send out the warning, and I want to just show you one picture of that. So this guy put some work in, did he not? <laughs> he loved his house like you should love your soul. I mean, this seems like a lot of work, but are you willing to put this kind of work on so your soul, when the floodwaters of the culture come in, so no matter what it rises, your, your soul is going to be safe, sheltered, you could be a sanctuary for someone else. Another guy tried. But do you notice everything but one spot? But it only took one spot to flood his soul. So you may be sitting here saying, I'm 99% better than everybody in this room. And that 1% is enough to flood your soul. See, we don't want to be foolish about how we see ourselves. We don't want to pretend that somehow we're better than or we've got it all together or I'm 80% there and that's better than most of the people I know. No, all that stuff is foolishness. We have to see ourselves that's part of having a good plan is just knowing my own capacity. We, we have to see the truth. Proverbs 27, 20, death and destruction are never satisfied and neither are the eyes of man. You've got to know that. You've got to know that verse. So when this thought comes into your head, if I could just have one more, that's, that's all I'll need. That's a lie. And you have to have the truth sitting right next to it and saying to yourself, no, that's not true. 
If I got that, it would feel like I'm satisfied. But a minute later, an hour later, a day later, I'd need more because God's telling me it's a window into my soul. He's saying to to me, Paul, that's not how you operate. Trust me. You're going to want this same hunger again. You got to know the truth. Part of knowing the truth is, is being able to stop this very hard at this moment and try to play out the future. Try to stop and imagine what this is going to look like in the future instead of what it's going to feel like right now. This one night stand, this abuse of Bathsheba, it led to the murder of her husband, Uriah. Really, one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible is in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, and there's a whole list of David's fighting men. That's how it's listed. And all these exploits that they did. The very last person mentioned, Uriah the Hittite. This isn't a random guy who's a shepherd. This is one of David's inner circle. This is somebody who's fought side by side. This is somebody who's probably saved David's life or he saved Uriah's life. These people have stories to tell. When they sit around, they get bigger and bigger. This, this, this kind of camaraderie, and he is putting to death his own friend. He doesn't play the movie all the way out. His private sin goes public. David's child, Bathsheba's child, he dies. One of David's sons tries to take his throne. David is temporarily displaced from being the king and has to go back living in caves. And we'll get to it in the next few weeks. But the next few chapters are an absolute disaster. And if David could somehow just said, let me, let me get a teaser trailer of the rest of my life, he would have said, I can't do that. It's not worth it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh all at once fire is kindled and flesh burns for what it wants it makes no difference whether it's a sexual sin fame money power at this moment god is quite unreal to us he loses all reality and only the desire is real see everything shrinks down to one thing your whole life gets shrunk into one little frame And when you're in this place, you better have a plan. You should have a Nathan before you need a Nathan, point number three. Every commentator says this about chapter 11, verse 1, that David was alone. He sent all of Israel, not every human being, but all the people that were closest to him, all of his comrades, all of his fellow soldiers, all of his Best friends are out fighting the war. David is by himself, which is always a dangerous place. Why is it when you travel alone, you feel a greater temptation? I don't, I don't travel that much, but I, I just noticed I traveled one time. I was just in, in Charlotte. Got off a plane, and I just thought, I'm all alone here. And it's just easy at that point to say, nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows what I'm going to do next. David's alone, and he feels this temptation. 
and he sent everyone off to war. If David, think about if David just said, hey, I need one fighting man with me. Just one. One one person that has stood shoulder to shoulder with me because it's more than just external battles I've got going on. I've got internal battles. So most of you can go out there, but I need one or two here that are going to help me fight an internal battle. Everybody needs a Nathan before you have to have a Nathan. So I just wonder if you have a Nathan. If you have a soldier, if you have a friend who you can say everything to, these are the the desires of my soul. I need you to help right now because it's particularly hot right now for me to want something that I can't have or wouldn't be healthy for me. Well, David doesn't have a Nathan at that moment, so God sends Nathan, chapter 12, in a very powerful moment. Notice chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent. If you were to go back to chapter 11, you would notice that in the Hebrew, the word sent is used 12 times. So in chapter 11, everybody's doing something. David sent, Bathsheba sent, Joab sent, everybody's sending something. And you don't see God until chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent. Now, the Lord is engaged. God is not a passive onlooker, onlooker according, looking at your sin. He's paying attention to you. And it's a mercy that God will expose your sin rather than leaving you in your sin. Please hear that. It is a mercy. It is a great kindness Every parent knows this. To help your child see their sin is a mercy. It is a kindness for them going forward. If you were just to leave them on their own, it would be disastrous. I played football in high school, and this coach of mine, who I really liked, he was just getting on me this one day. I'm sure what I was doing was perfect, and he just didn't see it correctly. And so in this one drill that we were doing... He just didn't think I was doing it correctly. And I thought it was a good time to help him know I was doing it correctly. And I was like, Coach, why are you always looking at me? Why are you always yelling at me? I didn't see him yelling at the other people. It's mostly just yelling at me. And through some tobacco juice and some interesting vocabulary construction, he said something like this. Phillips, you better be glad I'm looking at you. Because if I wasn't looking at you, it would mean I don't care about you. And I care about you. I don't want you to do it right. See, you you and I are going to need somebody like that who can, maybe with not the same vocabulary, Say, I'm looking, I'm caring for you, I'm willing to speak in, even in difficult times. You're going to need a Nathan-like person. And it's a kindness when God sends these people. Could you be your spouse? Could be a friend? Could be a, a sermon? Nathan's confrontation, so wise, so helpful for us. Nathan comes, you know the story. There's a rich man and a poor man, and the rich man has a front friend to come and visit. And he's got all kinds of herds of goats and sheep and cattle, and he says, I don't want to use any of mine. I'm going to get the one that this poor man has. 
It's a very shrewd way of stirring up conviction. It's a shrewd way we need to learn, especially now. Nathan needed a wise approach because he knows when people are confronted with their sin, they spin webs of rationalizations. They, they, defense mechanisms come in, self-deceptions take place, and, and they, they're convinced that what they've done somehow is acceptable. It's not wrong. And it happens all the time, especially for people in power. People who have power, they make great sacrifices. They don't get everything they want. They've made great sacrifices to get to this particular place. And it takes a lot of energy to hold on to that. And when you get tired, when you're in a person in power, you're going to rationalize and you're going to say something like this. Nobody knows the sacrifices I've made. And when you see an opportunity to do something foolish, you might say, I deserve this. Nathan understood this deception. So it takes real skill to come in at this moment. And he tells David a story. And you notice David's overreaction, did you not? The man has stolen one ewe lamb. And what does David say? He deserves to die! (laughs) It's a complete overreaction. What's happening? David's guilt is spilling out. Nathan has put the spear right on the bullseye. And he knows it because Nathan, David is just spilling over his guilt. And when Nathan has David leaning all the way forward, he looks at him and says, in the greatest application to a sermon ever, you're the man. So helpful what Tim Keller says about this little encounter. Let me read it to you. Notice that Nathan's, notice that Nathan's you are the man was his conclusion, not his introduction. Please pay attention. As God's prophet, Nathan is reflecting God's grace. And when there is any hope at all for persuasion, God goes for conviction and conversion, not condemnation. When there is any hope at all for persuasion, God goes for conviction and conversion, not condemnation. It glorifies God for you to tell the truth about sin, but it glorifies God more if the person repents. And if you condemn in a way that makes it almost impossible for the person to repent, then you're not on God's side. You're not a vehicle for God's grace. Wow. This is so vitally important for our caustic culture. When you have leaders bellowing out caustic vocabulary, it's very easy for you just to follow in line and think it's okay. It's not okay. When you enter into a confrontation, when we as a church confront our culture, which we do over and over again, When we're trying to tell the truth, we're trying to tell the truth to rescue a soul, not to be right. We are first and foremost vehicles of God's grace. 
not condemnation. It's very important for the church to get the approach correct. Otherwise, though we may be right, we won't be on God's side. It'd be worthwhile just to sit a while and talk to a few folks about this. Where might my vocabulary need to come down? My righteous indignation, my condemnation of other people. Where might I need to hear myself? Where is the Bible here a mirror to help you navigate the frustrations in our culture? We have to end here, but you see David's reception to the truth. I have sinned against the Lord. It's just two words in Hebrew. The words are few, but it's a good sign. It's a good starting sign that David's broken. No excuse, no, no more hiding. Nathan's graceful confrontation does open a door for David's heart to be softened and be convicted and be and repent. So we need Nathans. If you're called to be a Nathan, be a vehicle of God's grace, not condemnation. We see here, not surprisingly, David fails. He takes something from a woman that doesn't belong in his hands. And then he tries to hide, just like Adam in the garden. When Adam leaves the garden, we need a new Adam. When David fails here, we need a new king. That king is going to be Jesus. I hate to pause a sermon here, but i got to stop. So let's just think about these three things. The power of sin. Any Mr. or Mrs. Hydes here? Any cracks in the wall of your integrity? Maybe they haven't broken through right now, but just with a little more pressure. Do you have a Nathan? Do you understand the war that is in your soul every day? When you have somebody who stands beside you and says, Hey, I'm going to fight for you and you fight for me. And if you're called to be a Nathan, can you dispense the truth with grace rather than condemnation? Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, um, so many important pieces for us to pick up today. And I pray that you would just speak to every soul individually here to help them pick up the one piece that they needed to hear. Help us to have ears to hear and apply your truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.